As we noted last week, when Paul went to Corinth, he was determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He came to town in fear and trembling with a very simple message. He wanted to tell people about Jesus, his Lord and Savior and friend, and to tell them of the crucifixion, to tell them of God's plan of salvation. He trusted that God would convict and convert those who were open to the Spirit. So Paul didn't have to be clever or persuasive. Nor did he have to impress the Corinthians with his vast wisdom or keen intellect. So Paul's plan of evangelism was very simple. It was to introduce others to a personal friend and share with them the plan of salvation so they too could become a friend of God. And that's all we have to do in evangelism today. We talked about that in detail last week. Many of you went to class. We reviewed again how we can present the simple facts of the plan of salvation to those around us. That's our job. We can do that. But you know, then a question is raised in the church. Is what we shared last week all that a Christian needs to know? Is that all we should be discussing when we gather together for worship and study? Should our services merely be a forum for telling people of Jesus and reviewing once again the plan of salvation? Now, some would apparently say yes. Back in the 70s, Bill Hybels decided churches needed to be more seeker-sensitive. And many churches had become megachurches by following his example. In seeker-sensitive churches, public worship services are fashioned with the unbeliever in mind. Everything is done in a way to catch and to hold his attention, and nothing is said or done that he cannot understand. While many aspects of the Willow Creek model were new, some things weren't as different as you might think. You know, for years, the mark of most evangelistic churches was that the focus of their services was on getting people to accept Jesus. And the most important part of the service was the invitation. Willow Creek acknowledged several years ago that by solely focusing on seekers, they were shortchanging the saints. And in 1972, Bob Girard, a minister from Scottsdale, Arizona, wrote a book entitled, Brethren, Hang Loose. (laughs) And in that book, he questioned the focus of most evangelical churches. Now, I didn't find the book until the early 80s. And after reading it and discussing it among the eldership, we invited Bob to actually come here and share with us his thoughts. They were kind of revolutionary thoughts for the day. And uh, some of you may remember him as the man who prayed with his eyes open. 
uh, kind of freaked some of us out. He was standing right here, and then he was talking. Next thing you know, he's praying, and we're all looking like we were supposed to bow our heads, you know. Uh, but he was an amazing guy, and he had some neat things to say in his book. In his book, he wrote this. One of the more ingenious tricks the devil has played on us conservative, evangelical, fundamentalist, Bible-believing Christians has been to get us to confuse what we should be doing when we come together with what we should be doing when we go out into the world. We have been bedeviled into believing we should be evangelizing when we are together, when not more than 5% of those present are non-Christians. And while out there in the world, we're taught to be separated people, lest we become tainted by the influence of the ungodly should we associate with them too closely. Consequently, nearly every time he goes to church, the average evangelical Christian hears a simple evangelistic sermon designed to convert the sinner who isn't there, while out in the world, he doesn't have three friends who are not Christians. No question about it. The Great Commission says, Go ye into all the world and bring them into the church building so the pastor can preach the gospel to every creature. Pastoral egos are like this. We like to be depended on. It's great to be indispensable to the salvation of the lost, to be the only professional soul winner in the church. So long as we see a few people coming forward, we do not get too concerned by the reproductive sterility of our members. And we can tell ourselves that the continuous diet of evangelistic, elementary-level preaching is what the church needs. If we are blessed enough to see people coming forward several Sundays in a row, we are having revival and can know for sure we are doing the right thing. In some weary hour, when we stop to face for an honest, fleeting moment the utter impossibility of thinking that the world could possibly be reached inside the church, we may even admit that if our members were winning people to Christ as they ought to be, we might be able to minister differently. But they aren't, and won't, and can't. So we must go on as we are. We cannot figure out why they don't move past the baby stage into reproduction. The fact that they never get anything but milk from the pulpit and the church program somehow doesn't seem to our ecclesiastical mentality to be relevant to the problem. Well, he draws his analysis to a close by arguing... When the church comes together, it is not to concentrate on converting the 5% who may have dropped in for the services, but it is to concentrate on the maturing, stabilizing, edifying, grounding, deepening, developing, effective living and ministering of its in-group believers. Its ministry is not to be aimed at building the biggest crowd possible, but at building believers, whatever their number, into a vital person-to-person fellowship of love. Fellowship that really comes to know the Son of God. 
The reason more unbelievers could become believers in Acts 5.14, in spite of the fact that unbelievers stopped going to church, is that mature believers, no longer at the mercy of every chance wind of teaching, who love each other and get to know the Son of God, witness spontaneously, even without training. If that is true, then it is no abdication of evangelistic... I can't even say that word today. Evangelistic responsibility to stop trying to evangelize when the body gathers in order to concentrate on the maturing of Christians. Today, I see my ministry chiefly as a ministry to Christians. As an individual believer, I am as responsible to witness and win pagans as any other believer. But as a pastor, my first responsibility is to teach and to instruct the church so as to encourage the spiritual growth and maturity of believers until they become able to carry out their own evangelistic responsibilities. Obviously, I agree with that, and I have for 40 years. The spiritual growth and maturing of believers should be the goal of almost every Christian gathering. And if that is done, evangelism will take place outside of the gathering. And if we do that, familiarity and the simplicity of our evangelistic message won't put our minds into neutral when we gather to study. We won't go, yeah, I've heard that before, and go to sleep. Our times of study together as Christians will go beyond continual reviews of the plan of salvation. When believers gather, they are to plumb the depths of the wisdom of God. And this Paul affirms in our passage for this morning. He begins by clarifying that there's a difference between our evangelistic message, the one he first came to Corinth with, and the message for the mature. In our study, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right for verses 6 through 9. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now again, Paul prefaced this paragraph by reminding them that he didn't speak persuasive words of wisdom when he first came to them. His message was very simple. 
But he adds here, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. After someone responds to the simple message of the gospel and finds new life, he is expected to grow and mature to a place where he can go deeper. Contrary to what some may believe, we do have wisdom to share with one another. It's just not the wisdom of the world. It's not what the rulers of this world, the leaders of thought and philosophers have to say. It's not the wisdom expounded on the secular university campus. It's not a wisdom that is bound by the temporal nature of physical life. It's a wisdom that transcends this world. It's God's wisdom. Paul says it's a mystery that's been hidden from the world. A mystery is not something we're trying to hide. A mystery is something that you can't find on your own. What we've been given is something the world cannot find, no matter how hard it looks. It's a wisdom that, that man cannot discover by scientific inquiry and intellectual reasoning. It's truth and the application of truth about the nature and purpose of all things as established by God before this world was even created. It's truth about man, who he is, why he is here, how he should live, and where he is going. It's a wisdom that brings real glory to mankind, but a wisdom which the rulers of this age didn't understand, because if they did, Paul states, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus is the way to that glory. He's the one who unlocks man from temporal bondage and frees him from the glory, or frees him to the glory that God intends him to have. But the world doesn't understand that. Eyes are blind and ears are deaf. A natural man cannot reason out God's plan for the chief of his creation. It's something men cannot discover, no matter how wise or how clever or how well educated. The Christians are to deal with those truths. They are to speak the deep truths of God's purpose in life. Christians are to see and hear and understand how God is at work in their lives and in the world. And we are to share with one another a wisdom that makes sense out of the chaos of life. And we can do that because God's wisdom has been spiritually revealed to us. Verses 10 through 13. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God 
that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Those things that natural man couldn't see or hear or understand have been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. God had something in mind when He created mankind. He had a purpose in all of creation. A purpose that no one knew except for the Spirit of God Himself. And the only way for a man to know what was in the mind of God was for the Spirit of God to reveal it, and that He has done. Indeed, God's plan has been revealed to us through the Spirit's activity in producing the Holy Scriptures. There we learn of God, of creation, of sin, of redemption, and of the final consummation of all things. There we come to an understanding of God's goals and purposes for mankind. And there we learn how to look at life from God's perspective. God had to tell us these things. We would never have discovered them on our own. Just as no one knows what we're thinking except our spirit, no one could know what God was thinking until He sent His Spirit to communicate with us. And this God has done. Today we have the written revelation of God communicated by the Holy Spirit to chosen men down through the ages. And we have the Spirit of God within us. When we respond to God's revealed plan of salvation, His Spirit comes to live within us. He helps us remember what's been written for our instruction. Helps us apply what's written to specific situations. And helps us make decisions that honor our Heavenly Father. The Spirit is actively involved in interpreting and applying the Scriptures in our life. And giving us the wisdom we need to make right decisions. In addition to that, when we come to Christ, we're made part of a body made up of other believers who have also been indwelt by the same Spirit. So when the body functions collectively to discern God's wisdom, we explore the depths of His wisdom together. Bible study is so important. You know, I can't, I can't encourage you enough to get involved in different types of study groups within the body. You know, I, Wednesday night, you know, you're all invited. I invite you all the time. A very small number come. We gather around a ping pong table. But I am so thankful for those who come. Not just because I get a chance to teach them, because they get a chance to teach me. We have a great time exploring God's Word together. 
And not just saying, well, what does it mean to you? No, no. We want to dig deep and apply what we've been studying together, what we've been learning, what we've been thinking. And now that everybody's got these little eye thingies, I mean, we've got scholars all over the place. Yeah, yeah there's one right there. You just got to know whether what you're reading is true or not. I mean, that's my role. No, 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 no. We have access to some great study time. Okay? I encourage you to take advantage of it. You know, when the body comes together, we put into words the wisdom and counsel of God. We talk about everything God has revealed. And some of those things are hard to understand, even for us. And the world quite frankly, finds them impossible to understand and really doesn't care. What's important to us and what we invest our time in studying makes little sense to unbelievers. But that must not discourage us from delving into the depths of the mysteries of God. We've got to remember that the natural man is not going to understand the things of God. Because these things are spiritually discerned. Verses 14 through 16. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says the things of the Spirit are foolishness to a natural man. William Barclay put it this way. Paul speaks of a man who lives as if there was nothing beyond physical life. As if there were no needs other than physical and material needs. Whose values are all physical and material values. Who judges everything from purely physical and material standards. A man like that cannot understand spiritual things. A man who thinks that nothing is more important than the satisfaction of the sex urge cannot understand the meaning of chastity. A man who ranks the amassing of material things as a supreme end of life cannot understand generosity. A man who thinks his appetite, the last word, cannot understand purity. And a man who has never thought beyond this world cannot understand the things of God. To him, they look mere foolishness. He said that word. He said that. And then even beyond that, beyond the fact that a natural man looks at things from a natural perspective and therefore cannot understand God's point of view, the natural man doesn't have the equipment needed to discern spiritual truth. Now this room right now is filled with pictures and voices and music and data that we can't see or hear or access. The atmosphere is charged with them, but we don't see them or hear them because the equipment 
is an on. We don't have it. But if we turn on a radio or a TV or a smartphone, we'll pick them up. Without them, we can't even sense their presence. That's similar to a natural man trying to pick up on the things of God. He doesn't have the Spirit of God within him to enable him to understand these things. He just can't get the picture. Have you ever read something in Scripture or a good Christian book that really excited you and touched you and ministered to you? And then you gave it to a friend to read, only to have them say, I didn't get anything out of it. That's how it is with the natural man. He can't appraise spiritual truth. At least not beyond the basic evangelistic, evangelistic message, which God, what is with that word today? <laughs> evangelistic, got it, okay. Whew. All right. <laughs> he can't, <laughs> I'm sorry, he can't appraise spiritual truth, at least not beyond the basic evangelistic message which God makes understandable to all who will hear it. What I'm simply trying to say there is that even a natural man can understand the gospel if it's presented to him. But that's it. Okay? He doesn't have the equipment to go any further than that. That's what I've been trying to say. But we can go further. Since we've been given the Spirit, we can discern truth. We can examine things from God's perspective and see whether or not they're truly wise or foolish. And notice Paul says we can appraise all things. We can make accurate judgments on everything if we will just use the resources given to us by the Spirit to make such judgments. We can accurately assess everything that's going on in the world, if we will let the Spirit instruct us and enlighten us, we have the equipment necessary for wise thinking and wise decisions in every aspect of life if we will just use it and train ourselves to use it and work together as a body to use it. We've got the equipment. Let's use it. And then again, since true wisdom is spiritually appraised, the world won't be able to rightfully evaluate us. That means there's no need for us to get upset when the world criticizes our standards of morality accuses us of intolerance or tells us what we think and do as long as it is in keeping with God's revealed word is wrong. In fact, Paul says for them to do so is like the world instructing the Lord, telling Him what's right and wrong. Because we have the mind of Christ. It's been given to us. We have the inside track into reality that the natural man can never find. We have God's wisdom. It has been given 
to us. And we are to delve into the depths of that wisdom when we gather together. Through the Spirit given to us individually and as a body, we are to come to an understanding of everything that has been written in God's Word so we can respond wisely to the situations of life. Now, that's a big challenge. But we've been given the resources to do just that. They've been given to us in Christ and in the body of Christ. Lack wisdom, long for understanding, need a handle on life. Come to Christ. Let Him open your eyes He will make available to you the wisdom of God. And then together, we will discover all he would have us know. God has 